Hello and welcome to the BJ Psych Open podcast. My name's Piyush Pushka. I'm the digital content editor of the BJ Psych Open. So previous podcasts have mostly taken one paper and discussed it with the authors of that paper. Today, rather than just talking about one paper, we're going to talk around a whole theme recently published by the journal. And we're going to talk about them with experts in various fields, so other researchers and clinicians. So essentially, we're going to be talking about the kind of impact these papers are having or could have. Uh, so I'm joined by three guests to discuss BJ Psych Open's recent themed papers on refugee and asylum mental health. A brilliant spread of guests, including both people researching this area and people involved in actual clinical practice with forced migrants. So to introduce these guests, they're Professor Derek Silov, Dr. Eileen Boyd-McMillan and Dr. Maya Brun. So I'll just tell you a little bit about each of those people. Professor Derek Silov is a psychiatrist and an emeritus professor at the University of New South Wales in Sydney, Australia. He's a senior visiting research scholar at the Department of Psychiatry, Cambridge University, and holds honorary professorships at the University of Copenhagen and the University of Melbourne. He's worked with refugees and conflict-affected populations for many years in areas of clinical service, teaching and training, policy and planning, research and program development. He's helped establish services for refugees and conflict-affected populations in several countries, uh, including Timor-Leste, Papua New Guinea, with West Papuan refugees, Bougainville and Malaysia, amongst Myanmar refugees, and he's been awarded the membership of the Order of Australia for his work. Dr. Eileen Boyd-McMillan is a social psychologist, senior research associate and co-director of IC Research in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Cambridge. She researches at the intersection of theory, research and practice and policy to promote public mental health through the development of programs to increase self-regulation, resilience and social cohesion and reduce destructive polarization and inequalities. She's a founding member of the IC ADAPT Consortium. The evidence-based model IC ADAPT bridges individuals, family groups and structures and systems by focusing on communities and was adapted for the UNICEF Cambridge Learning Passport to provide social and emotional learning programmatic support within a mental health and psychosocial support framework in educational settings for refugees, migrants, displaced and other vulnerable learners in challenging contexts. She's a member of the Cambridge Public Health and Cambridge Centres for the study of global human movement and for the study of science and policy. And Dr. Maya Brune is a junior doctor specialising in psychiatry. For the past five years, she's worked in the Competence Centre for Transcultural Psychiatry, which is a mental health outpatient clinic close to Copenhagen, Denmark. She works clinically as a medical doctor in the transcultural field, primarily with treatment-seeking refugees with trauma-related mental health problems. And in addition to this, she's undertaking a PhD in which she's conducting a randomised control trial. The study is investigating an integrated care intervention of mental health treatment and employment services for refugees with post-traumatic stress disorder. So hello to all three of you and welcome to the podcast. So we're going to talk around the theme to start off with, and then I'll ask each of you to briefly tell us about one particular paper that really stuck out for you as relevant to what you're doing or thinking about in your work. So Derek, I'm going to start with you because I believe you were actually involved in the planning process for the whole theme. So can you tell us a bit about this theme in general and, and how it came about? Well, uh, I guess it came about uh, for many reasons, but not least being the unprecedented 
increase in refugees worldwide and the knowledge that we were in a state of crisis in terms of providing mental health and psychosocial services for refugees in all the parts of the world that, that need them. I, I might just start by uh, indicating how large the crisis is, if, if that's okay. Um, I mean, because we are in an unprecedented time where there are now over 100 million refugees displaced worldwide, which is by far the largest number since the Second World War. That's something like one in every 80 person worldwide is a refugee, kind of mind-boggling statistics. And uh, importantly, a third of these people are children or young people who are especially vulnerable, as we well know, to exploitation and abuse. Now, by far the majority of these people are displaced within their own countries. In other words, they haven't crossed borders or in neighbouring countries, usually in lower or middle-income countries. So they are in situations where mental health and psychosocial services are already very limited, and many of these people are completely devoid of any access to mental health services. It's particularly difficult in situations where they are within countries of conflict and where repression and persecution are rife. International humanitarian services often can't reach those people at all. So while we hear about the controversies about, you know, the access and, and arrival of asylum seekers in high-income countries, the crisis is in many ways in low- and middle-income countries, not in high-income countries. The only country that's really uh, taken in large numbers of refugees in the high-income world is Germany in recent times. So really, if we look at it at the global level, the number of asylum seekers and refugees reaching countries that we're familiar with, the UK, Europe, Australia, and so on, you know, it's really quite small in proportion to the total international need. So within that context, you know, the, the question of how do we provide mental health services and provide equitable mental health and psychosocial services for all refugees in need worldwide, I suppose, was one of the key driving forces behind the need to have this special issue. We pondered at great length about what are the main themes, knowing that it was impossible to cover every important topic in the field. And so there was a very lively debate for some meetings as to what to give priority. In reality, what happened was that priorities kind of emerged naturally over time as people submitted papers, and so there's more of a kind of a natural evolutionary uh, organic process rather than a rigid one. So I thought I'd just pick out some of the critical issues that I see have emerged as themes in, in the series. I mean, the first being in at the population mental health global mental health level. Um, and I'll talk about that later on in the podcast when I cover one of the critical papers relating to the epidemiology of mental health and a, a meta-analysis, a meta-regression of the existing large population studies. I mean, the second theme that I think is really important is 
developing an overarching model for delivering services at an international level, particularly in low-resource settings, as I mentioned. And there's one key paper by, you know, by the Denmark group, which I think is critical to trying to address the issue. One of the big challenges is, will we ever be able to afford to set up independent standalone mental health services for all refugees around the world? And I have to say that in the short term, that looks unlikely. In any event, this, this paper really looks at a novel way at trying to integrate. It's a proposal for integrating mental health and psychosocial services, MHPSS services, into existing humanitarian support services that are not specialised, in other words, generic services, which is a very bold and courageous attempt to try to address the resource issue. So I would recommend strongly uh, a read of that paper. There's also an emphasis on children and young people, as is fitting. They constitute a very large proportion of the refugee population, and they are very much open to exploitation and abuse, as we well know. And areas of focus there are in relation to the treatment of asylum seeker children, particularly policies that separate them from their parents, which has occurred in, in several places around the world which is a very disturbing issue about the human rights of children and young people, and also uh, keeping them for short or long periods of time in institutions, often on their own, uh, and what implications that holds for their human rights and their psychosocial well-being. The, the fourth issue that I would like to raise is cultural awareness, cultural sensitivity, and the uh, recognition and respect for culture throughout all aspects of our work with refugees, which is recognised as absolutely critical to our work. And there's a special uh, commentary relating to this in the series, which, uh, which is strongly recommended, which is a real plea for us to highlight, always prioritise our understanding of culture and the importance of training, awareness-raising, supervision, and uh, inculcation of cultural aspects in all aspects of our work. As we know, over the last 20 years, there's been a huge upsurge in development of psychosocial treatments for uh, refugees and asylum seekers, especially the development of short, targeted mental health interventions, such as narrative exposure therapy. And there are, there are several articles in the series which focus on the use of NET, narrative exposure therapy, and evaluate this treatment in the uh, psychosocial management of refugees. Uh, the importance of this is that the principle of task shifting applies in the use of these methods, recognising that specialist, professional, and qualified persons, such as psychiatrists, psychologists, are very uh, limited in, in low-income countries. So this involves the training of uh, lay workers from the relevant communities in these uh, simplified methods for psychological treatment. So I would strongly recommend those papers. The further area of work that is highlighted in the series is on the diagnosis of complex post-traumatic stress disorder. This is a diagnosis that has been 
in the wings for many years. There have been many proposals and formulations for a form of post-traumatic stress disorder that goes wider than what I suppose we call simple PTSD. That is uh, where people are having major adaptational problems in relation to traumatic situations and stressful situations, uh, which go, as I say, beyond just the simple diagnostic criteria of, of PTSD. Thanks, Derek. Shall, shall I bring in Maya there? Because I think Maya is going to talk a little bit about complex PTSD as well. Yes, thank you. Yeah, there were three really interesting papers on complex PTSD, and I chose the one by Da Silva et al. called Prevalence of Complex Post-Traumatic Stress Disorder in Refugees and Asylum Seekers. It's a systematic review. And to start with, then I'm going to pick up from Derek and just briefly explain these symptoms that makes complex PTSD different from PTSD, where we call it the disturbance in self-organization, the DSO symptoms, where we have three clusters, where the first one is affective dysregulation, and then the second one is disturbance in relational function, and the third one is negative self-concept. And this paper by De Silva et al., it deals with both the ICD-11 complex PTSD diagnosis, but also the equivalent in ICD-10, the one that we call enduring personality change after catastrophic experience. And then again, the equivalent in DSM-4, which is uh, called disorder of extreme stress, not otherwise specified, uh, which we abbreviate DESNOS. And this paper, it looks at the prevalence of these different conceptualizations of a complex PTSD. And they find quite a high prevalence in the treatment-seeking populations from 16 to 38%. And in other populations, it ranges from 2 to 9%. And I think as a clinician, these high prevalences, they, they resonate really well with our clinical experience of the presentation of PTSD in this population. And the authors, they argue that understanding the prevalence of uh, complex PTSD affects the treatment approaches that we need to take on for this population. And both this paper by Da Silva and also the other papers dealing with complex PTSD, they all argue that we need to look at treatment as more holistic treatment approaches and integrated treatment where we look at all these different aspects. As a researcher and also as a clinician, I agree with the authors that many Refugees have a really complex presentation of PTSD, as they also describe in the paper. But in general, sitting as a clinician, it feels like sometimes everything is complex. They also have complex traumatic uh, history or often very severe traumatic experiences. And then they have complexity in comorbidity, both psychiatric and somatic uh, many of our patients have comorbid depressions and abuse and other disorders. And then they have very often a lot of somatic problems as well with chronic pain conditions, which can really be a barrier in treatment. And then in addition to that, which is one of my fields of interest, is the complexity of all these post-migration stresses and often very complex social situations that resettled refugees they are in. So all these factors are just really something that makes treatment of this group very 
complex. Uh, and I mean, don't you think, Maya, that uh, a lot of the comprehensive treatment programs, such as the one at the Competency Center, which has evolved over many years, really, in that sense, deals with and anticipated the uh, late arrival of complex PTSD. In other words, your your treatment programs are already addressing those very same issues. Yeah, I will definitely say so. And I think it's something that we've been discussing for many years as clinicians. So it's really nice now that we have a diagnosis that conceptualizes it. But we also need to look even further into how to help this group more, as I said, with integrated interventions. Here in Denmark, we have a sectoral division. So all social problems and post-migration stresses, they are dealt with in a completely different sector. And we need to integrate all these things in the mental health treatment for better outcomes for the patients. Great. Thanks, Maya. I think this is actually one of the opportunities we have in, in this particular podcast to integrate all the different papers uh, that we're talking about, because I think, you know, some of that complexity, not just of the presentation of complex PTSD, but also in the causes of the, you know, the kind of distress that people experience after having been forced to migrate from one place to another, I think is kind of part of what, Eileen, you're, you're going to talk about. And I think uh, maybe also is related to your actual work as well, Eileen. So, should we move on to the paper that you were going to talk about? Sure. Thank you very much. So I found many papers striking, but the one I'm going to focus on is a refugee rose of competencies and capabilities for mental health care of refugees by Kamal Dezui. What I really appreciated about this paper, the many things I appreciated, was the emphasis on culture and the need to take into account culture, the need to consider the pre-migration, migration, and post-migration experiences, and many of the things that both Derek and Maya have already touched on. But uh, this is um, coherent with my my work, so I felt like I read a paper that, that was a cheerleader for, for what I want to do. And it also addresses a tension that's been around for a while between or involving the use of models from different contexts, say Western models in refugees' contexts, and the debate between are people's experiences so different that there's no overlap at all, and everything is um, different across cultures and contexts, or are things so similar that a culture is just a, a superficial overlay. And what I really appreciated about this paper was that it answered that tension by focusing on a middle way, saying it's both and, that it's both that we need to take into account the cultural idioms, the specific experiences, the cumulative experiences and histories and narratives of refugees, and also draw on models and frameworks that exist that can help us to assess and develop mental health, psychosocial support, social emotional learning for refugees in context. So, and, and we mentioned the cultural formulation interview and a model that I work with is the ADAPT model, adaptation, 
and development after persecution and torture that Derek developed and has been around for a few decades. And also in combination with another model, integrative complexity, the IC ADAPT model. But these tools are there. And my huge cry always is they need to be used more, but also the frustration of the the lack of resources and the huge need that is only getting larger and larger, as Derek outlined for us, and that, that there are no simple, quick solutions to this, that the tools that exist, the frameworks and models are usable and they're fit for purpose and they can be used. And what Derek talked about in terms of task shifting, the training of people to be able to use them is what is so needed in low and and middle income countries and everywhere. But I appreciated the emphasis on the cultural shaping experience. And Derek mentioned um, one of the articles on unaccompanied minors, Susan Song, talked about three and four-year-olds being trained in law so that they can argue or refugee status or asylum status, and what impact that has on on their cognitive development later years, but also what is possible for them to do at the age of three and four, and how they have to try to present their experience in a way that will grant them protection, but in a way that doesn't take into account the culture that they're originating from and how that has shaped their experience. Also, that symptoms expression vary by culture, And the threshold for a mental health disorder in one culture may not be applicable in another. There are several, I'm just throwing out many reasons why culture, the social, ecological, biopsychosocial, all these factors need to be taken into account and integrated. As you said, the integration is key. And IC stands for integrative complexity. So probably not surprising, but I, I think that's very important in the IC ADAPT model. But just a little bit more about the ADAPT model, because it's unique. And just to say something is that the ADAPT model posits that every society that's functioning well enough has five interacting systems. So safety and security, bonds and networks, justice, rules and identities, and existential meaning of any kind. And in crises of any kind, these systems, one or several can break or become disrupted in ways that then people individually and collectively react to. And their initial reactions are adaptive usually, but over time as these disruptions and breakages are prolonged and endure, they can become maladaptive or seemingly maladaptive. It may be adaptive in an abnormal situation. So, and using a a model like ADAPT, which was developed for and with refugees, helps to bring coherence and understanding to their experiences in ways that enable them to identify the resources they have and what resources um, need to be strengthened or augmented so that they can find their way forward. And it helps them to create a coherent narrative from the pre-migration, the migration, the post-migration, because all learning is cumulative and taking into account this trajectory is crucially important. Uh, I agree with you. There's so much in this paper to talk about uh, and one of the things being that it, it advocates for an eco-social approach, but it doesn't just do that in an abstract way. It actually gives kind of concrete examples of eco-social kind of interventions. And I was wondering if you would describe IC ADAPT also as an eco-social intervention. That was precisely the term I used when was it, 1999? <laughs> Gives away my age, doesn't it? But uh, yes, 
Yeah, it was meant to be an eco-social model. Okay, I'm going to try to explain what I understand eco-social to mean, and perhaps you, all three of you, can add to my understanding, in that we're all kind of very well-versed in working with a biopsychosocial model, but the eco-social approach kind of adds to that by recognising that inequality causes adverse experiences through poverty, racism, poor housing, unemployment, et cetera, et cetera. And these experiences drive poor physical and mental health. And there's lots of research on how this works at a biological level through weathering, inflammatory responses, et cetera. But the eco-social approach actually requires the clinician to consider what historical antecedents in a person's life have made that person more likely to experience those factors, to experience adversity, uh, and therefore to think about how it is that the clinician might be able to respond to those things. And also, it's about building not just culturally competent and structurally competent clinicians, but also culturally and structurally competent organisations. Yeah, I mean, I'd agree with that. And I think it also uh, denotes the fact that for refugees, and I mean, increasingly in our times, the issues of environmental degradation and the the issues of climate change and so on, all of these things are intersecting in, in major ways. And I think that's another critical issue in our understanding of what a refugee is, because there are multiple reasons why people are now driven to leave their homes and their homelands. And I think just to talk about conflict is inadequate, we have to understand all the other factors as well, which is making the world a far more complex place. But it it denotes that there's a change in the total ecology beyond just the social in terms of availability of resources, for example, just basic survival tools and capacities. And uh, it's, it's about the environmental change as well as the social change. And it's really trying to marry the two together, I guess, is my understanding of the eco-social model. So I think it's particularly relevant now where there are multiple causes of displacement and they're interacting with with each other, where climate change is contributing to pandemics, which is contributing to political instability and so on in, in vicious cycles, you know, in circles. And another thing that kind of struck me as I was reading this paper and, and reading, well, all of the papers in the theme and, and speaking to you today as well, is that although the kind of political circumstances have changed over the, you know, recently and the social environments have changed and the structural factors have changed, actually all of your work kind of speaks to the fact that actually we've had the knowledge available on, on what the kind of problems are and how we might be able to address them relatively well. Like Derek, you've mentioned that you've been working on this for, the, for literally decades. We've had that knowledge available for a really long time, and yet we're still struggling to actually use that knowledge and apply that knowledge to, to actually provide the best possible circumstances for people to flourish in. I don't know if you wanted to talk about that or say anything in response to that. Yeah, well, if, if anything, uh, sadly, I think things have got worse rather than better. Um, and, and I think it's a, a lot about equity and about uh, distribution of resources and large-scale planning and, you know, understanding of what it's going to take to make the world a receptive place again for humans to live in. 
not to mention all the, the other species of animals and plants and all the rest of it. And we just seem to be lacking that global vision. I'm sure that's evident to all of us. And as you say, I mean, the understanding of all of this goes back long before all of us, actually. There were many thinkers uh, along these issues for decades prior to the catastrophes we're witnessing at the moment. I mean, there are solutions, but they involve sacrifice and they involve uh, global thinking and the notion of collective thinking, which uh, which seems sadly lacking at the moment. I don't know if I'm just being pessimistic. I'm not sure what others think about that. Yeah, well, I suppose the paper that you're going to talk about, Derek, actually focuses on a particular environment in higher-income countries rather than where quite a lot of the the most severe distress is being experienced. But before we kind of talk about that, I just wanted to see if Maya or Eileen, you wanted to add anything about what we were just saying. So, yes, um, agree with what, what has been said, and also that the challenges seem to be becoming more and more and more complex, which was said, and involve not only displacement and mobility, but also immobility, and maybe mobility followed by immobility. And either can be voluntary and involuntary. And also then how we think about that, where one type of reaction or response to a crisis, a climate change crisis, or an authoritarian regime, or political developments, that sort of thing, is seen as resilient and adaptive. And all other responses are not seen as resilient and adaptive which doesn't take into account the lived experiences, the culture, the meaning-making systems that are involved in these different populations. And so there can be top-down views of what should happen rather than bottom-up, rather than collaborative. And, and a lack of interdisciplinarity or multidisciplinarity, which is talked about so much, but is so very, very difficult to do. And therefore, can be sort of done superficially and not at the deep level of, I think, what, what Bowie wrote about and what Derek talked about and what Maya's talked about, and also multi-sector and long-term thinking that, you know, with 50-year plans and 100-year plans rather than two-year plans. And a lot of funding lasts for a year and to do something and then it disappears. And so you've had changes that then, you know, are not sustained. And everyone talks about sustainability, but it, in terms of making that happen, that becomes a challenge as well. And the working in silos, you know, rather than the messiness of the, the, the complex models we need to work with, which is what I liked about Louis' paper and some of the others. And Kaufman's paper brought this up too, in terms of the Ukrainian refugees and the need to take into account culture and how mental health is viewed. I mean, how mental health is understood and talked about in different cultures. It may be stigmatized. They may have their own resources to talk about it in different ways. This kind of complex system thinking and structural thinking and ecological social thinking is complicated and takes time, but it's what sets the groundwork for the long-term solutions. And are we willing to invest in that? and keep going with it. It's, it's hard. <laughs> yeah, thanks. So shall we, shall we move on to, Derek, you were going to talk about one paper that stood out for you as well. 
Yes, well, I mean, given that my background is in epidemiology, I, I was sort of immediately attracted to this paper, which is called Anxiety, Depression, and Post-Traumatic Stress Disorder in Refugees Resetting in High-Income Countries, Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis by uh, Jens Henkelmann and colleagues from uh, Leiden University. And uh, we need to understand that this study comes in the line of several what are called uh, meta-analyses and meta-regressions of the entire um, population-based studies in the field of refugee and in, in some instances post-conflict mental health. Essentially what they've done is trawled the literature, both the published literature and the grey literature, for any population studies that meet particular criteria and then pooled all the data and looked for uh, patterns within the data, epidemiological patterns, and also conducted what are called meta-regressions, looking at predictors of prevalence rates. And, I mean, without going into too much detail, uh, it's, it's fascinating that what they found is really a replication and consolidation of previous findings in the literature, uh, almost to the exact number, especially a study done in my unit several years ago, led by my colleague, uh, Professor uh, Steele, Zachary Steele, which is that one in three refugees meet criteria for either anxiety, depression, or PTSD, or, you know, or combinations of those three major areas of uh, mental health dysfunction. One in three, which is a very large number of people, and just re-emphasizes the dilemma we face in relation to providing mental health services for all of these people. Having said that, it is also true that there are methodological issues that can inflate these figures, in particular the use of questionnaires, which do tend to provide uh, more, you know, higher level figures uh, where people are simply filling in symptom questionnaires as opposed to being interviewed more rigorously at a clinical level, because in that setting, of course, issues of functioning come into it. It's not just a matter of symptoms. So you do tend to get lower rates if you uh, use uh, systematic clinical interviewing. Nevertheless, findings do stand and have been supported by previous findings in the literature. The, the risk with these epidemiological studies and certainly these meta-analyses is that people will try and have tried to average out data across all the studies in the field to reach some kind of average prevalence or mental disorder, which then can be applied in new refugee situations. So we can say, well, 10% or 30% of refugees have mental health problems. We don't need any more epidemiological studies to demonstrate that, and we can just simply apply it every time we come across a new refugee situation. I would argue very strongly against that because what they found, which is perhaps not sufficiently uh, emphasized in the paper, is the heterogeneity in the findings between studies, remarkable differences across studies in the prevalence rates so that I believe that there's a, a real risk of averaging in those situations. In fact, one shouldn't average. The message should be that you do have to undertake 
new uh, studies on every new refugee situation to determine the special needs of each group. And it does get back to what we've just been talking about. Each group differs by culture, each group differs by risk factors, the number of torture survivors within those populations, and especially the post-migration living difficulties that people experience depend entirely on their context, whether they're asylum seekers or not, whether they're permanent residency or not, and a range of other socioeconomic and cultural factors that will determine why each group is unique, in fact. So while we do understand some of the core risk factors, we can't say we understand the issues for each group until we've really immersed ourselves properly in in an understanding of their special needs. Uh, Can I just ask, so there was one thing that really stood out for me as a non-expert in this field was that they said that the length of residence in the host country didn't particularly affect prevalence of, of mental disorders. And I was wondering if you had any thoughts as to why that might be and what the implications of that might be. Well, I think that illustrates uh, the, the point that I was trying to make, and which I think Yelin was also talking about, really. I mean, because if you just take the simple issue of permanent versus temporary residency, um, if you delve into the literature a bit more carefully, and in fact, studies we've done in Australia and others have been done elsewhere, there are quite different trajectories for people on temporary protection visas or asylum seekers who living in states of complete uncertainty about whether they're going to be forcibly repatriated in the future, as opposed to people who have permanent residency. And this is not sort of taken into account in the meta-analysis, mainly because they couldn't. There were not enough data points to fit that within their models, basically. But what you find is that asylum seekers do worse over time whereas permanent resettled refugees do better over time. And so in a way, they may well be cancelling themselves out, which really shows that at a pool level that there's no effect at all. I mean, there's also probably a subgroup, and we found a subgroup of very severely traumatised people, especially torture survivors, who do not do well over time. And they're sort of adding to the compounding of, of this. So, so simply... The duration of residency will not tell you very much because you have these sort of countervailing factors going on depending on the subgroups um, involved in each community. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah, so it's really helpful to have you unpick that a little bit. I don't know if Maya or Eileen, you want to add anything there? Yeah, well, generally from a clinical point of view, we also see great spread and heterogeneity in our uh, patients. So we have patients that uh, has arrived in Denmark one year ago, or we have patients that has been in Denmark for 30 years and are very different in the ways that we need to approach their uh, symptoms and their uh, situation. Um, and we also look much more into now early interventions. We uh, try to also with the Ukrainian refugees, with the Danish Refugee Council to, to, uh, to try to deliver some early interventions for this group so that we hopefully can prevent some people from developing trauma-related mental health problems. Thanks. Eileen, were you going to say something as well? Yes. Uh, Just to build on that is, so if people are uh, granted residency, also whether or not they're granted citizenship 
and whether how the policies and legislation develop while they are living in in that country, because sometimes there are experiences of social marginalization or discrimination through the policies and legislation, and what also can be called refugee hierarchies in terms of refugees from different parts of the world, different, different ethnicities, different cultures, different countries, different religions that may experience different types of treatment. And all of this can play into their experience of resettling in that host country. And as Derek and Maya have said, if there's a prolonged period of uncertainty, that's going to have an effect on anyone, particularly those who have gone through the experiences that have led to them uprooting and going somewhere else. So I just wanted to draw out those factors as well. Great, thanks. So I think we're going to have to begin to round up a bit, but I wanted to ask each of you before we go to just say something a little bit about how overall these papers and this theme will affect or change what you do on a on a daily basis. So I'll ask you first, Maya. Well, looking at this very interesting theme, then it made me think a lot about the future research also, because there were so many important and very interesting findings from these papers. But one thing that I, as a clinician, really thought a lot about is that how does all these different aspects affect the treatment outcome? And what are the barriers that we need to address first in order to get better outcomes of treatment. And in that, we really also need to look at what is the negative and positive predictors of treatment outcomes, which has been difficult for previous studies to find some robust predictors of that. So I thought that was something that I really thought about for future research that would be really interesting. Thanks, uh, Eileen. I will continue. <laughs> To, to, but but feel extra confident in what I'm trying to do. But also the overview and the presentation is inspiring. And as I try to develop these collaborations and also to develop programs, mental health, psychosocial, social emotional learning, MHPSS, SEL programs in different contexts and perhaps you know, share these articles more widely to try to increase support and collaboration, but, but investment in these for the preventative, as you were mentioning, as well as for the current. Because if we can do start doing that now, then there will be payoffs later on. And I will continue doing that. Thanks. Uh, Derek? Uh, well, I'm aware that the papers are still rolling in and, and the um, series is not concluded, which is very good news. <laughs> It's been pretty inspiring already. I must say, just looking at the papers and the both, uh, you know, the depth and the breadth of, of the topics and the contributions of so many different universities and other agencies around the world. I mean, it really is truly inspiring and uh, gives me hope for the future because that's what I'm constantly looking for. How is our field going to remain dynamic and forward looking? and keep ahead of all the negatives in, in our history at the moment to maintain itself and to flourish and to address, you know, the issue that's always on my mind is how are we going to address these enormous unmet mental health and psychosocial needs? 
But, uh, you know, but I take a lot of comfort. can't say anything kind of more specific than that, but I do take comfort from the enthusiasm and the commitment of all these teams and people and the people with us tonight, actually, to give me hope that there will be solutions, there will be creative ways forward. And, you know, the, the journalists made a huge contribution by bringing all these creative minds together. I hope we keep doing it. Just to reiterate what you, what you said there, there are further papers coming in. The series is ongoing. So if you're a researcher or a practitioner in this field, then do uh, consider submitting under this theme to the BJ Psych Open. Just to round off then, I don't know if, if any of you have any other take-home messages or anything else that you want, really want listeners to remember from this theme, or if you want to promote any other resources or organizations that, that listeners might find helpful. I mean, I, w- I would just say quickly uh, and reiterate perhaps what we spoke about a bit earlier, which is it would be useful to encourage some debate or deliberations about the way definition of a refugee may have to change and is in fact changing to the extent where, you know, maybe conventions have to change and international instruments governing uh, refugees need to change to take into account the changing world circumstances and the interaction, as I said, of climate change, environmental degradation and other factors with conflict and persecution in redefining what a refugee really is. I don't think there was anything in the current batch of papers referring to that explicitly, that issue. Maya or Eileen? One thing that I'm curious about is I think in the UNICEF project that you mentioned, COVID hit, and then there was a huge switch to digital and thinking that the digital resources were the sort of magic bullets that would solve all of these challenges. And I guess I applaud digital innovations and developments. This is why we're able to have this call on different continents and parts of the world today. At the same time, I'm concerned if the way that these challenges are addressed is purely through digital. I mean, there's some wonderful tools out there, you know, telemedic and tools that can drop resources in a remote area and people can engage in self-learning and that sort of thing. But I think what comes through in the papers is the need for human interaction and that digital can be supplementary and complementary, but cannot replace the human engagement to find out narratives and histories and stories and to come alongside and accompany people where they are and to offer support, and that that has to remain central. So that's something I'd like to emphasize and and that I appreciate from the papers that have been submitted so far, that I think that's an underlying, maybe more implicit and more explicit in different papers. And perhaps in the future, that will get drawn out even more. Thank you. Great, thanks. I think we're going to have to round it up there. So Dr. Maya Broom, Dr. Eileen Boyd-McMillan, Professor Derek Seiler, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. To listeners, thanks for listening to this BJ Psych Open podcast. For the latest updates, you can follow us on Twitter at the BJ Psych. To listen to more podcasts from the whole BJ Psych Journal portfolio, you can visit us on SoundCloud or search for us online. Um, The most recent one is uh, from the BJ Psych International Journal on psychiatric training in Sri Lanka. Uh, So go and check it out, rate it, recommend it, tell your friends, help us grow. Thanks, everyone. See you next time.